Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I hope all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I hope you enjoyed that because I have a feeling that what we just did is a lot like what it's going to be all the time someday, uh, just getting to sing songs like that in the presence of all of God's people. So um, today is our conclusion of the Good Life series. For those of you who are sad, I'm sorry. For those of you who are excited, you're welcome. Um, Today is going to be, I don't think a summary is the right way to say it, but it's maybe going to be me trying to put a bow on uh, this series that we've been going through. And the whole time we've been asking the question, what does it mean to live well, to live the good life? And to try and take the way the world determines what the good life looks like and to say, well, that's not That's not probably what it's about. And to use the books, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job to wrestle with this question of what does it mean to live well. And one of the things that I think, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about some points that are, I think, maybe crucial to us understanding this series. And to begin, I want you to think about um, some of the ways that we have to navigate difficult circumstances in our lives. Let's picture teenagers first, okay? So teenagers... One good example would maybe be you have a friend that's your really good friend that maybe starts to participate in things or hang out with people that you don't want to participate in or you don't think you should be, uh, those people aren't people you should be hanging out with. And so now you have this scenario to navigate. How do I stay a good friend? what What would a good loving friend do while also knowing I've been raised that Those aren't the types of things that we're supposed to do, and those aren't necessarily the type of people we're supposed to associate with. What do you do? It's a tough thing to navigate. Or maybe for parents, a situation that you might face is whenever your children are getting older, finding the right way to to discipline. How much is too much discipline? How much is not enough discipline? I don't know about you, but I haven't ever seen some kind of written down rule book that tells me this is exactly what you do whenever they talk back to their mother, but this is what you do whenever they accidentally steal an extra cookie, or this is what you do. I don't, I don't have that guidebook, okay? Um, some of you, for parents, it might be that uh, their friend, that they want to go over and spend the night at their friend's house, and you don't, you know that Maybe those parents let their kids watch movies that you wouldn't want to let your kid watch. How do you navigate that? Do you call the other parent and say, um, excuse me, my son or daughter will not be watching these movies tonight? Or do you trust your kid? I don't know. You gotta navigate that gray area. That'll be something that we'll get to look forward to someday. Some of you, there's navigating during the holiday season. Uh, Some of you have or all of us, have to figure out, okay, how do I make sure I spend enough time with this set of family or this set of family? Or, you know, I had a friend who his side of the family had gone through some divorce, and so it was, do we give the, each of the three families the equal amount of time, or is it I spend half the time with this family and then have to split this time with the two new families after the divorce? How do you navigate that? What's the rule book? Um... As an adult, when you're maybe an, an, a little bit more seasoned of an adult, uh, maybe you have to figure out some gray area navigating where you have adult children that are maybe making some decisions that you don't agree with. And you have to decide, well, they're an adult. I'm an adult. How much do I interject? How much do I step in? Or how much do I just let them? Where's the rule book on that? 
Or, lastly, some of you are navigating the questions of, as my parents get older and older, and I have to make some decisions about what's going to be best for their life, and I'm kind of the parent now. I'm having to make some of the, and navigate some of those waters, right? There are many people who believe that God wrote the Bible to be the answer to those questions, and we treat the Bible as a reference book where you just turn in the back to the section on R-rated movies. <laughs> you open it up. Oh, okay, here's, here's the answer. You know, if your kid is... 18, it's okay. If they're 17, no, don't, don't let them go. No, that's not in the Bible. Some of you are navigating the waters of, okay, how long do I have to wait before I know if this is the person I should marry? Or if this is not the person I should marry? Let's open the Bible to the marriage section. Okay, where does it say if you're out of college, it's within one year that you should know? Or you know, We don't have that, right? And I think many of you listening to me, you're like, okay, I get the point, Drew. But we wish... We so badly wish the Bible would just tell us the answer. Just give me the answer. What should I do to discipline my kids? Give me the answer. What should I do about um, all these different scenarios that we face in life? What I'm here to tell you is that I believe the Bible will never give you those clear-cut answers. And the second you think the Bible is giving you a clear-cut answer, you're probably not reading it exactly right. I'll just say that. But... What I do think is, is that the entire scripture from Genesis through Revelation is a wisdom book where we were called and God, the Bible was written for us to read it over and over and to meditate on these words. And as we read them, as we meditate on them, we will become better at navigating those types of things. We will be transformed as a person by the Bible will teach us how we see God. The Bible will teach us how we see the world. And the Bible will teach us how we're supposed to live in it. And that this text is a wisdom book. And so the first thing I want to say is that God's... Well, I've already said something. But the next thing I want to say is that God's concept of wisdom is different than the world's concept. I've said this over and over in the series. But the world says that wisdom is how smart your brain is. How quickly you can do math computations. How good you are at an IQ test. That's the world's wisdom. The Bible and God's wisdom is more than that. It is so much deeper than that. And it has a lot to do with how you are able to take who God is, where we live in the world, and how do we take that and apply it to our lives. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two passages that hopefully I haven't read yet, but they're going to maybe open your eyes a little bit more to how God and the Bible see the word wisdom. Or in in the Old Testament, uh, chokmah, which is the word for wisdom in Hebrew. So here we go from Exodus 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel. That's a good future name idea for any of you parents. Bezalel uh, for a future baby. Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and all kinds of skills. Okay, there's that word, wisdom. I have given him wisdom. But what is the wisdom for? To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure this is around when Moses is getting instructions for the tabernacle. And to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So here, this word for wisdom clearly is not about your brain power. He's saying, I gave this man wisdom to be able to understand the limits of metal, of gold, silver, bronze, and how to work with them and how to apply them to be able to make something beautiful. How many of you know people that would not do very good on an IQ test, but if you asked them to build a limestone wall at the front entrance of your house, they could do it and make it look like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? 
Are they wise? By our standards, we would say, no, they're not a wise person because they don't do good on an IQ score. But IQ score. But the Bible would tell you that the ability to take something like that is wisdom. To craft something is a type of wisdom. Here's another example. In Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, Moses is talking to the people and he says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering and take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for you will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees, and they will say, Surely this is a great nation. Surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. He's saying the people are going to know how wise you are, how smart you are, by how well you follow these commands that I've given you. Not by how brilliant your architecture is, not by how smart your uh, economic systems are, but by how you live out your lives. That is demonstrating how wise you are. And so God's wisdom, first and foremost, is about practical application for your life. The use reason I use that Bezalel analogy is because in that situation, he showed his wisdom by applying his skills of working with metal to do something for the tabernacle. And the question that we get to now ask is, okay, Drew, I'm not planning on being a metal worker or a stonemason, but even with life, it's still applicable. How do you see material in the world that we live in, our relationships, our friendships, our families, our businesses, the material that God gives us, how do we understand the limits of what those can do, how to work within those, how to, the potentials of what those have, and being able to live them out properly so you end up with something beautiful in your life rather than something that's a mess. And that is wisdom for God. And the Bible tells us the, the way that you achieve this wisdom is that the Bible was written for us to constantly read it over and over and to meditate on God's Word over and over. And we will constantly be revealing and learning new things about who God is, about the world, and about ourselves. And I want to make sure I say, this does not mean that you're not in the club if you haven't read the Bible enough times to really get the good stuff. I believe you can understand what God wants for your life on first reading. Paul says that a lot. That you get Jesus, you've got it. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still something where every time we come to God's Word, every time we draw near to it and listen to it, we're constantly being transformed and better and better at those gray areas in life that I was talking about. You're going to be better and better at handling those wisely the more you're in God's Word, meditating on it, living it out in your life. I think in our culture, we often believe that, well, if you just sit down with the Bible and read it, duh, you're going to know what to do. And we think that it's this cut and dry thing. Like, oh, well, just turn to Acts 3 and duh, that's what you do. We think it's that simple. And I don't think that is what's simple. I think the Jesus part of it is simple. But I do believe that as we constantly draw near to it and read it over and over, we gain these new depths. And so I believe that the, the best... Oh, that's not what I wanted. I believe that the best uh, place to see this is not on not Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 6, but it's Psalms 1. So I didn't change the title of that. But Psalm 1, if you turn in your Bible, Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That word in Hebrew, meditate, it literally means to mutter. To like constantly be muttering. Because, you know, back then they didn't, nobody all had a copy of the Bible. You know what I mean? Nobody had the Bible 
uh, like their own personal copy. You know, you would maybe as a community have the law written down and you would all go to the temple to hear from, read from the law, but nobody could afford to all have their own copy. But what you could do is you could over and over meditate on the parts that you had memorized and mutter them out loud day and night, reflecting on them, knowing that that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers, just constantly being transformed by that. The next thing that I want to talk about is something that none of y'all have asked me, which I totally would have asked me if I were y'all sitting out there during this series at some point. This is what I would have said. I would have come up to me and I would have said, Drew, this whole series you've been talking about, the desire to gain wisdom. And yet, the very first story in the Bible is about Adam and Eve eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil and how all of the bad stuff that happens is because they wanted knowledge of good and evil. And yet, you're telling me we're supposed to seek wisdom and we're supposed to want God's wisdom? Well, that's what Adam and Eve wanted, right? They wanted wisdom and they got in big trouble for it. So what's the deal, Drew? Or, as on this question, why did Adam and Eve get in trouble for wanting knowledge, but whenever God came to Solomon and said, what do you want? And he said, I'd like wisdom. He was like, man, you are going to be a great king. What's the deal, Drew? Okay, so I think this is very crucial to this whole series. But first, obviously, we gotta, I've got to remind you the Adam and Eve story. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did not say, you must not eat. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And then the serpent says, you will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. All right, Drew, what's the deal? This seems like a good thing. Wouldn't you want wisdom, right? Come on, come on. You, you want, God's telling us all along, those who seek wisdom are wise people. Well, they want wisdom. What's, what's the deal? Then we have this story with Solomon. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want from me. Want me to give you. It's kind of like a genie scene, like a genie in the bottle thing. All right, you get one wish. And he doesn't wish for more wishes or for money. He says... You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give me a discerning heart, a wise heart, to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. How can I practically apply the fear of the Lord and wisdom into leading these people? For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And what does God say? Well, because you asked that, y'all are in big trouble. No, he says... The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, for wisdom, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So if you, I, I'd be curious, I, I wish this was Bible class so I could ask you, what's the difference? 
but what do you think is the difference? And I think this, this is the crucial answer, the biggest part, and it's so important to this whole series. There is a difference in the Bible between people deciding to take wisdom for themselves into their own hands and asking for God to give them wisdom. You see in the Adam and Eve story, it says that Eve saw what was good, she took it, and then the bad things happened. And if you pay attention in Genesis, over and over, things like that happen. Abram saw that Hagar was good, and he took her for his wife and slept with her, and that's where Ishmael comes from. Instead of trusting and waiting on God's timing for Isaac, right? And then later on, there's more and more examples of the people of God seeing what they think they want, taking it for themselves, and thinking, this is how this is going to work. This is the right choice. This is what we're supposed to do. So wisdom is not the problem. The problem is, and this is a problem we all face all the time, is when you live your life, are you going to determine for yourself what wisdom is and what truth is? Or are you going to trust the wisdom that God gives us? And we see that throughout Scripture. We see that throughout our lives. Constantly, over and over, there's a challenge. Well, while we're sitting there and we're waiting, okay, God, what am I supposed to do? I'm waiting for you. I'm waiting for your wisdom. And how many of us are too quick to say, you know what? This is what I think we're supposed to do. This is where I'm going to take matters into my own hands. This is what I'm going to choose. And yet, we don't do enough of saying, God, I would really like your wisdom in this situation. I would really like for you to come and reveal to me what the wise thing to do is. And so the two major things that I've said so far, I want to kind of summarize them, is that the first thing talking about the meditating on God's Word is wisdom is about constantly reading and reflecting on God's Word to the point where we have a healthier view of God, always, a healthier view of the world, and how it, God and this world impacts the way we're going to choose to live our lives. And that this point... Wisdom is not about taking it into our own hands, but about asking it for God. And as always with this whole series, Jesus is the best example of this every time. Jesus is the best example of what it means to apply wisdom to your life. If you want to know what a wise, good life looks like, look at how Jesus chose to live and apply God's Word into His lives. That's wisdom. If you want to see a great example of what it means to choose God's wisdom over your own wisdom, look at Jesus. Every time he kept coming back to, I'm not, I'm making these decisions because this is what God's calling me to do. This is what I believe God would want me to do. The best example I have in scripture of what this looks like, of choosing to say that there is a wisdom that we get from God that is better and different from the wisdom we get from this world comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, if you want to turn there. If you read this and you get confused... I understand, but I'm hoping that after doing this whole wisdom series, this passage is a little less confusing to you. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To everybody else, seeing the Savior of the world come and to be dying on the cross looks completely ridiculous. Right? To see a king come in on a donkey looks ridiculous. Seeing a king come in on a war horse, seeing a king triumph over all his enemies by killing all of them doesn't look ridiculous. But the message of the cross to people who are not wise and do not know God and do not fear God, that looks like foolishness. But to those who know God and fear God, who are being saved by His power, 
uh, for who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You're like, okay, Drew, I'm getting confused. What's wise, what's not? It's constant. He's, Paul's just saying over and over, to the world, everything that it looks like Jesus did and to everything it looks like these Christians are now doing looks ridiculous and idiotic and dumb. But we know that we're not going to take our cues on what's wise in this world from what the world perceives as wisdom. We're going to take our cues from what God says is wisdom and what Jesus did on the cross. Jews, they demanded signs, and Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. The Jews can't really, their brains can't really grasp this. The, the Gentiles, they just think it's foolishness. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have gone further. Sorry about that. When we meditate on God's word daily, when we know that God is God and we are not, when we have a healthy fear and reverence of the Lord, when we choose to apply God's wisdom in our lives, it will look foolish to your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. Whenever, whenever you say, you know what, I know that I did nothing wrong, but I'm going to choose to apologize because I'd really like us to be reconciled, you're going to have a neighbor that says, that's ridiculous. If you don't think you did anything wrong, don't apologize. That's dumb. But you know what? I have a Savior who did nothing wrong and died for me. So the wisdom of my Savior is that I'm going to choose to do what I can in my power to create peace. Paul says, in your, whatever you are capable of, you go the way of making peace. That's going to look like foolishness to the world, but to me it doesn't. Whenever I choose to say, well, you know, my enemy is going to attack me, but I'm going to turn the other cheek, or my enemy is going to slander me or persecutely or falsely say all kinds of evil against me, but I'm going to rejoice and be glad, for great is my reward in heaven. For blessed are you when people persecute you, insult you, and say all kinds of evil against you. But your friends are going to say, stand up for yourself. Go tell them, you know, say, well, I'm not going to say what they'll, they'll tell you to say. I was about to. I, I They're going to tell you to say something, but you know what you're going to say? Well, I have a different wisdom that I live by, and it looks like Jesus Christ. And if you ever find yourself where your wisdom starts to look an awful lot like the world's wisdom, or you have people that don't know Jesus that are saying like, yeah, that's right, you go do that. You probably need to check yourself a little bit. Because if you're someone that's meditated on God's law enough, meditated on who Jesus Christ is enough, you're probably going to live a life that looks incredibly foolish to everyone else. But we know the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. We know that in those places that look foolish to the world, that is where true life is hidden because that's where Jesus Christ will be. When we live by God's wisdom, which has been woven into the fabric of the universe, we join in His ordering of bringing life into the world. And when we choose to take wisdom into our own hands, we get to be a part of human history where we constantly bring chaos and disorder, where God wants us to bring life and peace. The question that you have to ask yourself every day is, which will I choose? Will I choose to trust in God's wisdom that looks foolish to the world, or will I trust my own wisdom which looks smart in the world? And that's the question you have to decide. So I want to encourage you, as we 
finish this series, I want you to constantly think about what it looks like to be someone who says, I'm going to choose Christ and the fact that he is the epitome of what it means to live well, even when everyone else says that doesn't look like what the good life looks like. How am I going to choose that when everything is crumbling around me to say, I'm going to hold on to the fact that I'm living the way I'm living because of my fear of the Lord and that this is how I feel called to live. If any of you would like to join in that life, we'd love to talk to you. If any of you have any prayer requests, I'd encourage you to come while we stand and sing this song.